This evening we are going to go to the New Testament, Luke chapter 14. Uh, we will read from verse 25 to 33. Yet in the sermon I'll be addressing, I'll be talking about the previous verses as well, because they are all connected. Verse 25, the context is in chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, and they watched him closely. So it is the context he was invited to the ruler of the Pharisees, uh, one of the Pharisees, and he was eating on the Sabbath. And then the many things that he taught. And then the verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother. Wife and children. Brothers and sisters. Yes. And his own life also. His own life also. He cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make a war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able to ten, able with 10,000 to meet him come, who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks condition of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. We're going to go to the confessional reading, Lord's Day 24. Lord's Day 24 comes after Lord's Day 23, obviously. 23, 24. 23 was about justification, the how are we justified. And then Lord's Day 24 is, um, the title says, the sanctification of, uh, actually, the, I'm looking at Welsh confession, that's not right. Uh, Lord's Day 24 is a, actually a continuation of the Lord's Day 23. Uh, I want you to notice here, first of all, before we begin, that Lord's Day 23 has a positive sentences. So positive sentences are just affirming what the truth is. So here it says, What does it help you to know that you believe all these apostles' creed? How are you righteous before God? How? Positive sentence. Uh, and then, uh, you are justified by faith alone. And then, if you look at Lord's Day 24, Lord's Day 24 is considered to be a counterpart of Lord's Day 23. Lord's Day 24 uses negative sentence. If you notice, negative sentences are... Uh, affirming the truth by using negative things like you can't or you don't. So if you look at the Lord's Day 24, question is 62. Why can't our good works 
be our be our righteousness before God were at least a part of our righteousness. So pretty much it's the uh, they are saying saying the same thing. You are justified. You are saved by God's work alone. There's no room for our works in our salvation. One is a positive sentence. The other is negative sentence. The answer, because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. That makes sense. That's why Jesus said in our passage that you must give up everything. You must hate yourself because there's nothing. Your, your old self must be destroyed. I'll touch on that in the sermon. Question answer 63. How can our good works be said to merit nothing? Again, negative sentence. Nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next. This reward is not merited. It is a gift of grace. Question answer 64. Very important one. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? Doesn't this doctrine of grace that you are saved by God's mercy alone make you lazy or indifferent and wicked? No. Because it is impossible for those who are saved, grafted into Christ by true faith, not to produce fruits of gratitude. In other words, if you are saved, you must good works. Not that good works can, uh, can be your merit, your credit for salvation. It's your response to your after you are saved. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 26 of our passage, Luke chapter 14. Very odd, strange, and depends how you look at it, can be very provoking. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What an odd thing to say. You wonder, in one place in the Bible, it says, honor your father and your mother. You hear about that every Sunday in the Ten Commandments, Fifth Commandment. And also the summary, love your neighbor as yourself. And here it says, if you come to me, you want to be my disciple, you must hate your wife, your brother and sister, your parents. I'm just paraphrasing. In one place in the Bible, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, your own wives. Wives, you love your own husbands, as Christ loves his church to the point that he died for her. And here, it seems like Jesus is saying, Hate your wife. Something opposite. And I have seen some people use this passage and use it as an excuse to hate their family members. Or even they think this passage allows them to abandon them. 
Love your enemy, Christ said in one place. But here it seems like Christ says, "Hate your brother and sister." And some people may argue, in a childish way, "Well, brothers and sisters are not technically your enemy." I'm not going to get into that. But the serious things that I have seen is that I have seen cases where this passage was misapplied and misused in some Christians. Uh, families in China or Asian countries where most families are a Buddhist or Confucianist, what we call the ancestor worship. Christians are forced to participate in ancestor worship, which is very difficult. Every year when they have a family gathering, they do ancestor worship together. They have to do that together. But of course, as a Christian, you have to refuse because you cannot serve idol and God at the same time. I have seen many people, especially Christian wives, because they are the ones who are asked to prepare meal, food, for, for ancestor offering and worship. I have seen many people coming to uh, pastors, or in this case my dad, asking advice, what should I do? Every year, every year. Didn't Jesus say you have to hate your family members? to follow Christ. So they take this passage and try to apply to them uh, in their daily life and try to justify their hate uh, against their parents or their siblings. Well, in North America, we have not quite the same uh, thing, but we, some of us experience a similar uh, situation. For instance, uh, when church splits, like uh, our church, URC, coming out of a uh, Christian Reformed Church, let's say. It's a very sensitive topic, but that's the history. The families are broken. I know, because my, my in-laws, uh, they experience that. Some family members, they go to the former church. And then those who come out, they came out because they care about the truth. And then they don't want to hate each other. But sometimes, sometimes, sadly... There's a question, can we break out of the family member, hate even our family members? Should we hate our family members to be faithful because we have to be faithful to Christ? And of course, that, that's really difficult, a difficult topic. So in a sense, yes, sometimes you have to draw a line. You have to say no in case of ancestor worship. You, you don't want to do that. Uh, or when they ask you to participate uh, Roman Catholic Mass, there has to be clear line. But my question here is, uh, is this passage about mainly about hating family members? Is that what Jesus Christ is teaching? Is that the main point of the passage? Because, because we always have to do justice when we read the Bible. That's very important. We have to see the Bible as it is. So the question is, are we doing justice to the text by telling people, yes, this passage is about, is about you. If you don't want to do ancestor worship, um, you can hate, even hate uh, your, your parents. 
what is Jesus really saying? That's what we are trying to um, understand this evening. So the theme is this. The theme kind of gives away the answer. The main point is about following Jesus Christ. If you want to follow him, the theme says you must consider first what it takes to follow Christ. Christ says takes everything. Takes everything. Second, you must consider what the kingdom of God is, is like. Well, as I said, that's a very controversial statement. But if you understand correctly, if you read the text within the whole context, you will understand the main point of Jesus Christ, which is not really about hating your brothers and sisters. That's not the main point. His main emphasis is on, again, becoming followers of Jesus Christ. To become his disciples, you have to give up everything. Especially yourself. You have to hate yourself. Now, in light of that passage... If Jesus says you have to hate yourself, and that kind of gives answers to those who like to recognize our works as part of righteousness, the answer becomes clear. If Jesus says you have to hate yourself because you have to die, your old self must die, and your new self must be born again, rise again in Jesus Christ, now how much more is that the case when it comes to your righteousness? There's no room for work righteousness. And that is the main point of Lord's Day 24. Everything, even yourself. Notice the progression here, verse 26. Hate his father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, and then the family members, and finally, his own life. Which is very hard thing to do. Maybe I can describe the main point of this chapter, of this portion, like this. Let's say you are purchasing, purchasing something, you are buying something, and then you're, let's say you're buying something big. Your decision is based on how much you value that object. And different people have different values. For instance, I never understood people buying pickup trucks. Uh, because from where I came from, first of all, you, don't, you hardly see any pickup trucks there. People don't use them. They are desirable, yes. It looks nice. They're big. They're like a tank. But personally, um, I didn't find myself needing that, that big truck. It would be nice. But think about it. Being a pastor, I ask, I ask myself, does a pastor really need a pickup truck? Other pastors living in a prairie, they might have one. Other pastors who used to be a mechanic, they had, they had one, they keep one. That's understandable. But at least for me, I don't 
need a pickup truck. So it doesn't make sense for me to spend uh, tens of thousand dollars on a pickup truck. But I totally understand those who work in the construction business or in farming business, that it makes perfect sense to have one. It all becomes how much you value the thing. And it, apply, it applies the same when it comes to, let's say, musical instruments. Some violins and cellos, they can go up to tens of thousand dollars or even hundreds of thousand dollars or even million dollars in Europe, in Switzerland. But people who do not into music, for them, it's just a waste of money. But for those who are in music industry, they know the value and they want to purchase them. So if you have a $50,000 in your hand, which one would you buy? A pickup truck or musical instrument? Again, it depends on your value, what you value more. No, now, why am I telling you this? Well, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to hate yourself. In other words, what do you say the value of the kingdom of God? That's the question that he's asking. How much is Christ for you? Is that worth more than your pickup truck? Is that worth more than that grand piano? Or is that worth more than, let's say, your family? And most of all, is that worth more than yourself? That is the main point. Christ is giving a practical example. If you open your Bible, let's skim through. Uh, verse 7 um, which I will talk more specifically in the second point it says in the verse 7 uh, he told a parable to those who were invited and he's talking about a kingdom of God so verse 7 um, so there are people who wanted to choose the best place uh, there's a, something about a pride, you must let go your pride. And then specifically verse 12 and 13, you must give up your desire to be recognized, recognition of your good works. Do not expect to be repaid. I'm going to go over this again in the second point. Also, your worldly desires should not take priority over the kingdom of God. He's so so your world, worldly desires, such as later he says in the, in the uh, later uh, verses, that you, your desire for real estate, your house, your properties, um, something about oxen, um, so we can say your business, your work, even spouse, your family, should not be valued equal as Jesus Christ or more than Jesus Christ. If you, and then he go, he, we come to uh, verse 26. If anyone comes to me, does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Wow, that's uh, very harsh words, very difficult. Difficult to wrap around our, our head around in this verse. 
But Jesus Christ, our good teacher, knows how difficult this is for us, difficult concept for us to understand. So he goes on and explains more by giving two parables. So we're going to look at that more extensively right now in the verse 28, which we read. For which of you want to build a tower? Which of you does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. So if you're build a building, what you do first is uh, you make a budget. That's a wise thing to do. Because if you don't think, think about it enough before you jump in, and the, what Jesus says is, then after you, you laying a foundation, you ended up not having enough money to finish it, then people will see it and mock you. Verse 31, another parable the second parable or what king going to make a war against another king does not sit down first and consider what he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 uh oh I'm in trouble he would say so while the other is still far away he would send an a, a ambassador a delegation and ask the conditions of peace because he's going to lose a war you have a neighbor, very obnoxious king. You want to invade the kingdom. There's one problem. The kingdom is very powerful militarily. Has a nuclear weapon. The king has his finger on the top of the button right now. What do you do? Before you jump into the war, you might want to have some discussions with your generals, admirals, secretary of defense. You want to talk to your allies before you jump into a war. Otherwise, many people will suffer. And if you know you're not going to win, as Jesus said, you think about something else. So, verse 33, the key passage. So likewise... Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Oh, what does that mean? Well, here's the explanation. Likewise, like these two parables that he just mentioned, whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Well, it means this. Just like a builder has to make a good plan and make a budget before building something, it takes a lot of money. Just like the builder, if you want to become my disciples, you have to sit down and consider it carefully. What it means to follow Jesus Christ. How much does that cost? You want to follow Christ? It costs everything. You have to think about it. You, who would like to follow Christ, you have to be like this king. A king has to think twice, three times, or even more before raising a war against another nation because it takes a lot of resource and sacrifices. Likewise, if you want to become my disciple, you have to know what it takes to become my disciples. 
what you have to sacrifice? And the answer is, it takes everything that you have. Four chapters later, in Luke chapter 18, there was a rich young ruler came to Christ, asks, Good teacher, what can I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The same thing. Jesus said, you know the commandments? The ruler said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Jesus replied, you still lack one thing, that sell all that you have. Distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. So what does that require for you to follow Christ? Your everything. That is the main point of this passage. That's what Christ is saying to you, brothers and sisters. That it takes our everything. So you say you are Christians, you follow Christ. You have to consider them. You have to know them. Isn't that true when we speak of our sanctification? The scripture describes our sanctification of a dying of the old nature and the rising of the life of the new. Repentance. Paul says, putting off of our old self, put to death your members which are on the earth, Colossians 3.5. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness. You have to put off. Put them to death. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. And at the same time, put on Christ. Put on love. If you look at verse 26, 27 carefully, those two verses are basically saying the same thing. You must value Christ more than your loved ones. Verse 27 says, Whoever does not bear his cross, he cannot be my disciple. Cross. Cross. It's a very scary statement if you think about it. What is cross? It's an instrument of execution. So, so if you want to enter the kingdom of God, your old self, your sinful being, your whole being, your wrath, sorry, the, your very nature which is under God's wrath must perish. That's sanctification. And then your new life in Jesus Christ begins. Well, it's not that you can enter heaven, cross by, uh, heaven by bearing your, literally, your cross. Our confession echoes the biblical truth by saying, our good works cannot be part of our righteousness. So bearing your own cross is this. You see, your sins are already forgiven. You are declared righteous. We learned about that in Lord's Day 23. You're declared righteous before God because Christ bore your sin. He took your sin on the cross. And His righteousness is given to you. Declaration is one-time declaration. Justification already happened. But in the meantime, in the meantime, yet still, we are still in the flesh. 
Martin Luther had this famous saying, simultaneously justified, at the same time we are sinners. Romans 7 testifies that. Good things that I would like to do, I do not do, but sinful things, I keep doing it. I can't help. It's addiction. I'm addicted to sin. I'm addicted to porn. I, I'm addicted to all those sinful things. Gossip and hating my neighbor. All wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? This very body. You have one. This very body of death. Although I am already justified, we are still looking toward, forward to the future, forward to be unclothed of this earthly tent and to be clothed with the building from God, a house made with hands, eternal heaven, 2 Corinthians 5. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we struggle in this flesh and sin. In other words, we are justified once, but this process of sanctification is ongoing process. We are being sanctified. That's why in Catechism and the Lord's Day 31, when it comes, when it talks about repentance, it uses the word it uses imperfect tense. Repentance is dying of the old nature and coming to life of the new. It's not just one-time process. It's ongoing process. You keep dying and you're being raised. So in that sense, when Jesus said, you have to take your cross, does not mean we take the same cross as Jesus Christ did. No. Can, we, can you drink, Jesus said to his disciples, can you drink the same cup that I drank? No. But in a way, you will. We take our cross, which means, in a way, in a, in a, way, in a similar way, we put our old self to death and let the Holy Spirit work in our hearts, raising new life in us. Let's go to the second point. Consider what the kingdom of God is like. So verse 7. Now we're going to go to verse 7 because that's the continuation of our passage. Uh, as I said in chapter 14, the context is uh, Jesus invited one of the ruler, invited by the, one of the rulers of the Pharisees. And he began to explain what the kingdom of God is. And if I may briefly summarize, the kingdom of God is a very, very strange place to be. It's a very strange kingdom that the principle that you apply on this earth doesn't work in the kingdom of God. Starting verse from verse 8. In the kingdom of God, those who exalt himself will be humbled, but those who humbles himself will be exalted. He said these things in the context where the Pharisees competing themselves to sit on the better place. Honorable place. In a place it's like a synagogue or when they're invited in the house party. So the kingdom of God is not for those who desire honor or accomplishment or their works 
be recognized by others. The kingdom of God is for those who confess the opposite. I am not able to achieve anything. My good works are garbage. Even if I achieve something that is by God's grace. Or those, kingdom of God is for those who say, we are unworthy servants. We have done what was our duty. Luke 17. Let's take a look at the next verse. Verse 12. The kingdom of God is a, such a strange place. When you, when you throw a party, when you open a party, when you have a feast. He says, if you look at the verse 12. Do not invite friends. Again, it's in the context of the Pharisees, the many Pharisees. Do not invite friends, brothers, relatives, nor rich neighbors, because they will invite you back and you be repaid. You know, my grandma was really good at that. My grandma was really good at that. Not that she like to invite rich people she didn't have any rich friends um, but she was really good at remembering how much your neighbor spent when they took her out for lunch and she always taught her children and me then you do the same you have to spend at least the same or more than what you received it can be misused too. If the neighbor spent, let's say, a penny, then she would think sometimes out of jealousy, she would think, oh, don't spend more than penny to the neighbor. But here, what Jesus says is don't invite your family, friends, or rich neighbor, but invite the poor, the maimed, lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Now, why is that? Why is that? So we've got to be careful not to be legalistic. We have to understand, we have to take, um, whenever we read these kind of passages, let's not be too simple saying, well, Jesus simply said, do not invite um, uh, a rich neighbor, oh, you, have, uh, you earn more than I do, so you're not welcome the next time. That's not, what he, that's not what he means. Definitely, that's not what he means. He says, don't invite your family. Well, I'm sorry, that's what Jesus said. That's not what he means. We have to see the spirit of the law. Well, the reason is, the reason is because at least they can pay you back. That's what the text says. You see, the kingdom is not a place for showing off your righteousness. The kingdom is definitely kingdom is very strictly close to those who desire to get paid back for their for, for their righteousness. You see, the, in other passages, Jesus was criticizing the Pharisees or the Jews who did good works and tried to show off by playing music in the, as a background. Or uh, think about the parable, or think about the story when he was looking at the offering box and there's a, there a rich man dropped uh, lots of coin, heavy coins, probably did it on purpose, one by one, ching, 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 so that he can show off his righteousness. And there's a, there's a, there's a widow came with two copper coins. 
And then Jesus said, the widow, she gave more than the rich man. You see, the, the kingdom is opened to those who confess their inability. This is confirmed in, chap, uh, four, cha, in ch- four chapters later, in chapter 18, when Jesus heard the prayer of the two men, Pharisees and the tax collector. The two men went up to the temple and prayed. One Pharisee, he stood up. What did he say? Well, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even, look at this tax collector, I'm not like even this tax collector. And the tax collector, standing far off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, beating his breast, and simply saying, God, merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, This man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So again, from the verse 7, we know that the kingdom of God is the place for those who show humility. Not for those who want to be recognized by their righteousness. Jesus continues to explain about the kingdom of God in verse 16. A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. It's another parable, parable of banquet. And verse 18, and there are many invited. And but those who are invited with one accord, a very interesting expression, which means they all together refuse to come. They refused to come to the party, and they all gave excuses. First said, I have bought a piece of ground. I have to be excused. I just bought a house. I just bought a field. I have to be excused. Another, I have bought five yoke of oxen. Uh, If we translate it in today's term, maybe we can say, well, I got a brand new John Deere tractor. Sorry, I only know John Deere. I have to test it out. I got a big a pickup truck. I have to test it out. I'm not able to come. I'm sorry. Another one said, very important, I have married a wife. I have a new family. I have a married wife. Therefore, I cannot come. What are they really saying here? Well, again, context is very important. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, and children. Now the context. I have a married wife, therefore I cannot come. Well, first one who bought the piece of ground, what he's saying is, my, my real estate property is more important than your feast. What does a feast mean in the Bible? Passover that is also um, progressed in the redemptive history the Lord's Supper they are not exactly the same but there is progression and then later the marriage feast of the Lamb in other words the feast in your kingdom spiritually speaking is not as important as my property the second one my farming, 
my tractor, my whatever the tool that you love, my business is more important than your feast. And the third one, my wife is more important than you. So going back to the, the main question, what is more valuable to you? My field, my ground, my house, my business, my money, my wife is more valuable rather than participating in God's feast. Rather than going there, i rather go and do something else. Is that the mindset that we have when we come to the worship service? Instead of being fed by the word of God, my heart is somewhere else. Well, the real estate market went down 20% in GTA. Oh, what should I do? Instead of thinking about the word of God feeding me that my soul is nourished by his word, I'm worried about, oh, what am I going to do? It's going to get so busy next week. What is more valuable to you, even your spouse. Then what does a master do? He invites people from the street. Verse 20, master of the house being angry, he's very angry, he said to his servants, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and maimed and blind. And then they all came. Now, after hearing this parable, I'm sure there are people who also misunderstood this passage by saying, well, previously, those who were invited, they had a chance, but they blew it. Sucks to be them, they blew it. The master is angry. They're not there. They had their own chance, but now master is giving chance to anyone else. The feast is to open is open to anyone. In other words, it doesn't matter what you do, no matter what you do, you will be in the feast anyway. Now, if I translate that in a in a dogmatic dilemma, uh, dogmatic terms, we have the same dilemma when you talk about the doctrine of grace. We say we are saved by grace alone. Very true. We are saved by Christ's merit alone. Very true. Which means there's nothing that I can do to contribute to this salvation. But doesn't this, te does this teaching make people indifferent and wicked. The Catechism asks in question and answer 64. In other words, the heaven is opened to anyone, you say, to common people, lame, sick, and blind, and sinners like all of us, because it's only by God's grace we are saved. In other words, if then, if we are going to heaven anyway, there's no point of Exhorting, rebuking, correcting through preaching. 
If there's anyone, if, if it's open to anyone, which is true. You can see the pendulum, pendulum is swing to the other side too much. Yes, it is true that our works are useless only by grace. It's open to everyone. That's true. The heaven is open to um, anyone who, who believes in Jesus Christ, regardless of our works. But it does not mean that good works are meaningless. It does not mean we should disregard our good works. Catechism answers because it is impossible for those who are grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of thankfulness. So Christ was countering that argument that anyone can come and Christ continues to teach this time gives correction to people who think that anyone can enter the kingdom. Verse 25. Great multitude went with him. Meaning, they all want to follow him. And to them he turned around and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So you guys are currently following me. So you're with me physically. But in your heart, again, if you do not value the kingdom of God more than your own life, you cannot follow me. Not anyone who says, Lord, oh Lord, I did miracles in your name will enter the kingdom of God. You cannot follow me if you value your life more than Christ. Therefore, consider how much you desire the kingdom of God in your heart. Like the builder who had to think about the budget. Like the king who had to weigh the, uh, how much he has to sacrifice the price of war. You must estimate and think about how valuable it is to follow Christ. So the challenge is for you. Is, that, is there a desire of heaven in your heart? How valuable is it? Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. A man found it, hid it. He sold all his belongings to purchase the field. He sold everything. Everything. He bought the field and he was glad. In the Old Testament, Ruth is a good example. Ruth, she lost her husband her father, uh, and her father-in-law. Naomi told her to go to her own town, her people. Why? Because it would be very difficult for Ruth to follow Naomi uh, to go to Bethlehem as a foreigner. Different culture, different language. But Ruth says, wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. You shall be your uh, people, which will be my people, and your God, my God. She desired to be part of God's people. 
She makes this confession despite the difficulty that she was going to have in the future. She was willing to leave behind her everything, her home, her people, and even her identity. Speaking of good example, Christ is the ultimate example of this. Christ emptied himself of heavenly glory and came to this earth. Christ, because he desired the kingdom first, he became like a slave, obedient to his father to the point of death. He showed a selfless love on the cross and he didn't want any compensation for his works. Isaiah spoke of Christ and his feast by saying, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come and eat without paying price. Just like Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you invite people, do not expect to be repaid. Dear congregation, do you have a desire to follow Jesus Christ? And you must deny your righteousness, your own righteousness, and then cling to Jesus Christ. Believe in him, and then he will do the rest for you. Dying of the old nature. We are not, going to, we are not able to do that by ourselves, if you think about it. Dying of old nature. How can I do that? The Holy Spirit has to work in our hearts. Just cling and depend on Jesus Christ.